Uh, hi. Uh, so ING Carrie Uye Johnson Ije Dakwakara Hyunin J. And uh, I'm here in Haines Junction, Dakwakara. And my guest today is Teresa Vandermeer Chasse. And uh, please introduce yourself. Dine ke dalhit nalna shonsi, noglek hey Teresa Vandermeer Chasse shonsi. Hello, my name is uh, Teresa Vandermeer Chasse. My upper tanana name is Dalhit Nelna, and I am a member of the White River First Nation of Beaver Creek Yukon. And I'm calling in from Kwanlin, uh, Whitehorse Yukon today, um, traditional territory of the Kwanlin Dun First Nation and the Ta'an Kwatran Council. Oh, it's so great to have you here today. So tell us a little bit about uh, what it is that you do. Sure. So I am a full-time Upper Tanana curator and visual artist, and I work primarily in contemporary beadwork. Um, I didn't start becoming a full-time anything until probably about 2018 is when I actually uh, became self-employed. Uh, prior to that, I, you know, was starting to get training in, um, you know, I worked at the Kwanlidan Cultural Center. I worked at um, the Yukon Art Center, getting trained in this kind of curatorial uh, view, and I really enjoyed it. <laughs> so I just kind of wanted to continue on with it, and I felt like uh, being a freelance curator and uh, dedicating my time to my work uh, was something that I wanted to pursue. And uh, growing up, when did you start to like realize that you had the gift of artistry in you? Oh, goodness. <laughs> actually, music was my first passion. Um, I actually really wanted to go into music uh, behind the scenes and things like that. But I have been beading since I was eight. Uh, my grandma taught me when I was very young. Um, but every eight-year-old, you know, nobody wants to sit there and, and bead for hours on end. So that kind of left me for quite a while until I went to university. Um, and when I was at the University of Victoria, uh, I was studying anthropology. So I actually have a background in anthropology and anthropology is such a, a strange <laughs> uh, thing to study as an indigenous person um, because they're always looking at the other, they're studying the other, but I am the other. Um, so it was a very uh, stressful time of trying to understand where I am and, and how am I placed within um, anthropology. So that's when I started to take up beadwork to actually help calm me, um, you know, reduce the stress and things like that. Uh, so I started to bead more in university. And in 2016, I have my first piece that I <laughs> made. I made this piece in 2016. It's called The Shoe. And uh, this is the first time I started to call myself an artist was 2016. So, yeah. That's, that's beautiful. Thank wow. you. And that's all beadwork on there? Yeah, so the beadwork, it's not sewn beadwork. Uh, this was actually glued on. Uh, so I took each individual bead and placed it on with the skewer stick. And it kind of, it's reminiscent of how they do beadwork in Mexico. Uh, but instead of adhesive, they use like a beeswax. So it's, this is kind of where I started to just collect things that I found on the side of the road because I found the shoe. There's no other pair, <laughs> you know, there's no pair. Um, and I just started to beat it uh, and kind of put an indigenous voice on to these uh, roadside garbage that I could find. So what have you learned about your business during this pandemic? What's like, what's been the impact on your business? Um, 
definitely vulnerability. Uh, I think every self-employed person has felt it at some point in their career. Um, and I'm definitely feeling it now. Uh, you know, events, exhibitions, festivals, everything's been canceled uh, that I generally rely on, especially in the summer months uh, for income, you know, especially with art, uh, you know, I like to go to like a little festival and sit there and sell my wares. And, you know, I, I can walk away with quite a bit. Um, and same with the curatorial side, a lot of exhibitions have been closed or, you know, galleries have been closed. So exhibitions aren't happening. Um, so there's a big loss in the arts and uh, culture sector right now. So I've learned that, you know, this is a time of kind of <laughs> uh, confusion. Um, uh, you know, it's a little unsettling. You have to really start to figure out, okay, what's our next step? Where do we go from here? Um, how do I pursue this? Uh, so yeah, I'm learning a lot about being self-employed <laughs> and I'm learning a lot of how I can present my work in a new way um, to, to make sure that that continues on. Uh, what's been your engagement with customers, like with you, Connors? What, how has that been happening lately? Because usually it would be at an exhibit or... Yeah, yeah. everything's been online. Um, I tell people this all the time, but so I curated the exhibition at Emerging North, um, at the Yukon Art Center, sorry, called Emerging North. Um, and it was set to open uh, and literally like a few days before the opening reception, the Yukon Art Center decided to close because of COVID. Um, so it was a big hit for me uh, because it was my first big art exhibition that I had curated. Like the main gallery is the biggest space uh, essentially in the Yukon that you can really host um, beautiful pieces of work and things like that. So having the opening reception close and, and not even happen, I was just like totally thrown back. But um, the Yukon Art Center, we did a video. As soon as it closed, they got me in there. We did a little curatorial video where we just kind of like walked around the room and spoke about the pieces. And then just recently, uh, we were able to do an artist talk with uh, seven of the eight artists that are in the exhibition. So my interaction is with people <laughs> like you, like speaking to you, um, but not really having access to a, a full audience um, other than, you know, things like interacting on, on social media, Facebook, Instagram, having likes, comments, things like that. Um, it's been very different from, from the usual way of actually seeing people face to face. As a curator, you're a leader. You're kind of pulling together a vision of, of something that you want to say or a group of people want to say. So what are you learning about leadership in having to face closure and things like that? Oh, yeah. Like, I think the biggest thing right now is, um, for me, I really enjoy teaching. Uh, I taught at a couple of universities, and I just, I love I love the engagement that we have or the conversations that can be sparked when we're bringing up these discussions. So I think uh, for myself during this whole time, it's always about teaching. Uh, we've talked about this before, but you know, there's lots of things like COVID-19 is happening, Black Lives Matter movement is happening, um, you know, indigenous rights, uh, conversations of indigenous rights, uh, sovereignty, all of these different kinds of things are happening all at once. And I really enjoy speaking towards them. Um, and, and having a, a conversation, a two-way conversation where 
um, you know, somebody may not agree with me, somebody may not have the same viewpoint as me, uh, but we can get to a place where there's mutual respect and understanding of these situations. And I think that's, that's what I love. <laughs> and I try to do that through my work, I guess, um, through the work that I present. I might not have, you know, created, uh, you know, the beaded mask or anything like that for the COVID-19 to represent it. Um, but I'm looking at different ways of how do I do my work? Why do I do my work? And those are what's important for me to remember at this time. Um, you know, I personally don't uh, want to necessarily remember all of the grief that we've all uh, been experiencing. Uh, some people do want to mark that uh, in time. I personally want to grow from it. So I've started to actually, um, yeah, create new works that aren't necessarily about it, but relate to it because it's part of my, my growth through this process. And I think that's like one of the things that we've heard a lot in this podcast is take this time to learn, to, mm. to sort of build your relationships, look at your connections, and then learn and adapt, right? Like to, to figure out and find new ways of sort of um, pushing what your business is and, and finding those spaces in between to fill. Yeah. Um, so could you talk a little bit, like, how are you thinking about your art a little bit differently? Like, what's, what's coming up when you're finding your creative spaces? Yeah, sure. Um, so my biggest one right now, you know, COVID-19 hit um, sometime in March, uh, and my, my life as an entrepreneur was impacted. Like I said, the exhibitions closed. I had a solo exhibition in Victoria set. Um, I was able to use a space <laughs> to take video of my work, um, but no, I never actually got to interact with anyone in Victoria uh, through that exhibition. So those things really started to impact everything. And I had to start thinking of, okay, what am I, what am I actually going to create during this time? And do I feel motivated enough to create, I guess is a big part of it as well. Um, I've talked about this openly, but I've lost two grandparents in April. Um, and being struck with, you know, a worldwide pandemic, um, you know, the loss of two uh, people very close to me, um, as well as, you know, seeing uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the videos that have been posted, um, like so, so much grief, everybody's going through it right now, in one way or another. So I have to bring that back to me and my work. Um, so a couple of things that I've done, I have examples. Aha, I've come prepared. Um, so these are earrings that I've kind of done before. And they're your basic kind of uh, dangle uh, beaded earring that a lot of people do. Um, so this isn't anything new. And this is something that I made quite a few years ago now. But from this compared to this earring that I literally just made last week. So it's different. I'm starting to kind of approach my work in a different way. I'm using um, materials that I, I don't usually use uh, in earrings and things like that, like this semi-precious stone. Uh, people really like hide. So I've started to interact with different things that I don't usually do, especially in small um, pieces. I generally don't put as much time as other artists into making the jewelry. But um, I did make as well this week this drumstick. Uh, and this is specifically just for me. And that's something that I've been engaging with um, during this entire uh, experience in these last few months is um, 
also taking the time to make for myself and my family. And I think that's really important as an artist because we don't, you know, a lot of artists don't actually create stuff for themselves. Um, that's something I've noticed is they usually try to sell it or they have an order and they have to fill it. Um, but they don't actually like keep some of their work. So this is mine. <laughs> this is not anyone else's. And, you know, this is a style of beading. It's called peyote stitch and I'm not very good at it. Um, you can see, I don't know if you can see that, but the bottom here is a little, uh, ugly up here. It's much nicer. And this just allowed me to practice a new form of beadwork um, while doing and creating something that's specifically for me. And I've talked about it before, but beadwork is definitely a way of, for people to um, take the time for themselves, like actually be able to sit and breathe. I know a lot of beaders uh, have taken up beadwork because it helps with um, trauma, you know, going through trauma and things like that, helping reduce stress. Uh, I know when I'm teaching it, people say it's very meditative, like they just kind of zone out. Um, so I think that's kind of a big part of how my work is changing right now. What advice do you have for emerging artists who are trying to find their voice or their space right now? Yeah, <laughs> keep, keep creating, keep creating, keep creating. I've seen a lot of new emerging artists popping up on my social media and I am so happy to see how much they're creating. Um, I feel like they have an opportunity now to really engage with um, people that are, have been in the arts uh, sector for so long. Like I myself, um, I don't even call myself a mid-career, but I'm, I'm kind of not emerging. I'm, I'm, not, I'm kind of in the middle. So I myself am still new to all of this and this process, especially being an entrepreneur. Uh, this is all, every year is a learning lesson right now and it's only been two years <laughs> so i'm myself am learning but for young uh, emerging artists please keep creating i will try to get you into as many shows as i possibly can that's a big goal of mine as a curator is to have the uh, young indigenous voices particularly uh, be uh, included in the conversation in galleries and things like that uh, because I think it's a voice that is often uh, missed and forgotten about or ignored. So it's definitely uh, a big part of my career and what I enjoy. And so I just enjoy it. I love seeing young artists start to create and, and even, you know, people uh, that aren't young uh, starting to take up new activities, right? I feel like people may not have more time during this era <laughs> but they certainly are at home and they're getting bored and a lot of people are picking up you know crafts and new activities that they haven't done before they're building things that they wouldn't have before i think those are really exciting things to see because people are starting to understand what art does and um the importance of art to get us through all of these really uh, intense conversations that are happening in the world right now. Mm, yeah, the uh, the art of, uh, of pro protest, the art of <laughs> changing the way we think about these things, right? Like uh, mm -hmm. there are there are the the physical manifestations that we see out on the streets, and and any protest that I've been a part of is is artistry in action. That's where like there's so much to say in those spaces, and your art really does say 
a lot of stuff like your 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 curation of of what you do like tell me a little bit more or tell us a little bit more about what it is to be a curator uh sure i love being a curator i was really pushed into well I wasn't even pushed into it. I just kind of naturally fell into curation. Um, my grandpa built a museum in his backyard in Beaver Creek. It's called Bordertown Garage and Museum. You might know it. Some people might know it. Um, and so he's been collecting for like 50 years. Um, and his collection has just grown. And he's curated his collection into this museum and, and you know, made a general store and this kind of stuff. And that I've always been around that <laughs> and sure some of this stuff is junk other stuff is extremely uh valuable especially to Yukon history and I just uh really enjoyed that kind of space I always love going to museums I um, wasn't actually going to art galleries until quite recently um but I really enjoyed just kind of uh being able to play around with um the work you know Curation is about how people view something. You know, you're manipulating it uh, in a way so you can get your point across um, or you allow your audience to see it in a different, the work in a different light. So for example, like the Emerging North exhibition, um, you know, you walk in, uh, there's the title, return to the left and you can see bits and pieces of different work. But the first work that you generally walk towards is probably um, Heather von Steinhagen's installation piece. And there's lots of color. It's, um, it's a little darker because there's a video, but you're naturally kind of drawn into the space. And then you just kind of walk around um, the space. And I've, I've kind of, yeah, a curator basically sets their mind on everything that an audience is going to see um, and then tries to present that work so the audience actually fully understands, or at least understands most, of what the artist is trying to do with that work. I think that's a big part of it is the curator is a translator. Because um, artists sometimes, you know, they create this beautiful piece of work, then they'll write like two sentences of it. And I'm like, but you just told me an hour and a half of like how important this work is, but they summarized it into two sentences. The curator's goal <laughs> is to portray what um, that artist is also speaking of that they might not have actually written down. So that's what curation is in a summary. <laughs> yeah. That's great. That's really good. Um, how, how are you kind of getting through the days? Like what's been your wellness practice as, you know, everything in your business model has, is evolving and changing. How are you keeping yourself grounded? Yeah, it's definitely, um, like I said, beadwork is a way of, calming oneself like taking the time for yourself um to just sit and be with you because uh, that kind of self-care is really important i think especially right now um you know you go on social media and, and there's one thing after another um and not to ignore it uh, but to understand it in a different light i use beadwork as my um as kind of my space <laughs> as my as my bubble as um i can uh, you know, forget about the world uh, while I'm doing my beadwork. Um, sometimes it helps to just kind of re-energize yourself and uh, be able to go back into the conversation the next time. Or you know what I mean? Like it just allows that time and space so people don't get burned out. Um, you know, a lot of Indigenous people 
you know, there's a saying that if you're born Indigenous, um, you're born political. And it's true, <laughs> because our very existence, our very identity is defined by the federal government in Canada. Um, so Indigenous people always have walked around with uh, a number or, you know, like all these kind of, um, uh, it's not even self-identity, it's, it's identity that's been placed upon us. So we're always having to deal with these certain things. For myself, I have white skin, so I can walk into a grocery store and not be followed. Um, but for my relatives that do have darker skin, they have to deal with uh, racism head on every day. And that's why I believe that you know, taking up um, something like beadwork, taking up an art form um, allows people to just have a moment for themselves just to breathe um, and realize, you know, how are we going to approach things differently? That's the big question for I think the world right now, and it can relate to COVID, it can relate to Black Lives Matter, it can relate to anything. Um, it's up to us to have the conversation of how we're going to move forward. How are we going to change? Uh, because if we don't change, you know, history is repeating itself in many ways. But yeah, I believe beadwork is uh, a really good method of dealing with and handling uh, stressful situations like this of unsure of where my business is going to go in the future and things like that. Hmm. Any aha moments for you over the past couple of months, like anything that's kind of shifting your worldview? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's everything stacked on top of each other because <laughs> it's a lot at once, right? Uh, these are conversations that I've had every day of my life, but it's always been, this conversation is happening on Monday. This conversation is happening on Tuesday. It's not all the conversations are happening every single day, all the time, 24 hours. Um, that's what's become very exhausting. And it's starting to remind me a lot of uh, why I was so exhausted in university. And there's this thing that I call cultural exhaustion, which is your... Um, because of who you are, you're often uh, approached for questions of this or expectations of you have to respond in this way or if you don't respond to something, you know, all this kind of um, pressures of uh, because of your identity. And it really does exhaust you. Like you actually walk away really tired and fatigued. And that's what I've been finding in this moment right now is just feeling constantly exhausted. Um, so it's nice to go and sit <laughs> in front of my TV and just sit and bead. And I'm thinking about the world. Sure, everything's happening in my mind. But I'm able to just take a moment to, to be in the moment, I think, is the biggest part of this. Um, you know, we can look at uh, all of the negative things that are happening. But there's also good in everything that's happening as well. And that's something that I think people get blind to is, uh, you know, there's celebration here. There's um, excitement. There's uh, change. I love change. Change is a good thing, right? Um, so that's kind of like, that was my big aha moment was just the fact that there's so much happening and uh, people are getting burned out quite quickly, myself included. Yeah, it's certainly. I, 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 I hear you. There's, mm -hmm. a, there's a lot. There's a lot happening and there's this sort of like level of anxiety that just sort of sits with all of us and then kind of keeps ramping up from time to time. But mm -hmm. I loved that you talked a little bit about hope and change or adaptation. 
what would be like your vision for, you know, as we're adapting the Yukon economy, as we come out of, you know, this sort of lockdown or shutdown that we've been in, what mm-hmm. would your hope be for what we build together over the next couple of years? That's a really good question. Um, the biggest thing for me is I've always had an, uh, concerns with, um, Indigenous artists in Yukon being portrayed as kind of a commodity, as, um, you know, we're just like a, a check mark, you know, off of people's list. That I want to change. I don't want to be the check mark anymore. I don't want to be the, the box that you have to check off, basically. Um, I want to be somebody that people feel engaged with, that they feel comfortable coming to, but that they're not hesitant in hearing what I have to say or what any other indigenous person has to say or whatever any other uh, black person has to say, you know what I mean? Like um, that's something that I think Yukon struggles with. And I would love to see um, more of that type of support rather than um, yeah, rather than seeing us as that commodity or, or as that tourist attraction because we are often are used as the tourist attraction because <laughs> we make beautiful things, right? We make, people are making regalia, people are making drums, they're making weird things like me with my beaded shoe. Um, we're used as an attraction in many ways, but if we can have our voices heard and respected, uh, that's, I would love to, <laughs> to see that. I think we're slowly moving there. Um, but I definitely think that it's it's a good opportunity right now to rebuild. And I think a lot of people are doing that, uh, rebuilding themselves, rebuilding their identity, rebuilding their businesses sometimes. I myself have to think about that as well of how am I um, presenting my work to uh, audiences? How am I acting as, uh, you know, a contractor? You know, things like that. Um, it's very important. But yeah, I'd love to see those kind of things change in the Yukon. So the last question is usually a song, a book, a podcast, a movie, something that you think people should, uh, should take in. Like getting you through. I came prepared. I'm so happy. I do have a couple books. Um, These are the three books that I recommend uh, for non-Indigenous uh, readers, I would recommend Indian Horse if you don't fully understand uh, residential school and the experiences that uh, residential schools survivors had to face. Indian Horse is really good for that. However, I I often find that reading this book it wasn't meant and it wasn't written for Indigenous readers uh, because it's so triggering. So that's something about this book, but I really enjoy it. Here's my next one, Marrow Thieves. I love Marrow Thieves. Um, it's a great book. And this one has, you can read it. Anybody can read it, obviously. Um, but it has, it has such really good connection to Indigenous knowledge that as an Indigenous reader, I was picking up on things that non-Indigenous readers weren't. And I really enjoyed that aspect of this book. There's a lot of hidden meanings for both non-Indigenous and Indigenous readers. So that's something. And then to get more technical, uh, Beyond Blood by lawyer Pamela Palmeter. Um, she wrote this book. It's, very, it's pretty, pretty heavy stuff to get through. But this is for anybody that's interested in actually understanding why uh, 
Indigenous people <laughs> are often, you know, frustrated or angry with the government and things like that. And this really explains a lot about the Indian Act. Um, I've even encountered people that in Canada, you know, three, fourth generation Canadians uh, that didn't even know an Indian Act existed. You know, those kind of basic um, ignorant things that um, some people just have uh, and they just don't educate themselves. So this is a really good intro to that kind of side of this world um, that we live in as Indigenous people. Um, Beyond Blood really helps um, guide people into that conversation, I guess. But yeah, those are the three books that I, I highly recommend. They're all very good reads. I like, uh, I like how you brought in a theme there, this sort of like worldview, right? So like you're talking about one book being written um, to sort of like anchor in or speak to a certain worldview. So a non-Indigenous worldview with, yeah. with the Richard Wagamese book versus yeah. like the Bone Marrow Thief, which you reflected like really spoke to you because it was written through a worldview that is internal to you. Mm -hmm. um, and I think maybe that links a little bit back to what you were saying earlier or what we were talking about earlier about sort of business development in the Yukon and, and ensuring that the worldview of um, Yukon First Nations Indigenous people is reflected in, in what we build together. Yeah. 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 I think a huge thing that I've been noticing over the last couple of years, actually, uh, because I've been working with Indigenous and non-Indigenous artists, um, is that our worldviews are very, very different. Uh, and it's not on purpose or it's not because one person is more ignorant than the other or anything like that. It's literally how we were raised. Um, the, the words that people said, uh, the concepts people, you know, your grandparents passed along to you, things like that. They're very, very different. And it is quite difficult to explain uh, sometimes to non-Indigenous people, even uh, non-Indigenous with amazing intentions uh, that are open and very uh, eager to listen. Sometimes it's really hard to explain what is actually understood in, in my mind uh, compared to theirs. And that's something that I've been struggling with um, in how to teach <laughs> or like how to explain at least, not teach, but explain um, what that difference is. And, you know, it all comes down back to the connection that we have with our lands uh, and where we come from. That is so integral to what makes Indigenous people Indigenous um, that it's really hard to explain if that separation has already occurred. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing that I, I struggle with uh, personally in my work, um, in teaching, anything like that is uh, making sure that my worldview is understood enough <laughs> that we can have this conversation. But sometimes the worldview does get um, complicated and it, you know I can't explain everything about what I've learned because I've learned everything since I was a child um, but it's there and it exists and I believe every indigenous person has this and you know people talk about it all the time uh, you know when I say non-indigenous I'm referring to anyone that's not from North America uh, to begin with but everyone is indigenous to somewhere and I think that's really important to remember people people often forget that <laughs> like you know, especially like the Canadian identity thing confuses me because for myself, 
I'm Apertanina. I'm indigenous to here. And I'm also European. You know, my grandpa came from Netherlands. We're Frisian. Uh, you know, I'm French. You know, these kind of things. Understanding that, yeah, I'm European in uh, my ancestry as well. Like, that's powerful. I love knowing that. I love knowing where my family is from uh, rather than saying things like, I'm a Canadian. Uh, <laughs> what is a Canadian? <laughs> you know, a Canadian's all mixed. Um, but when we're talking about like Indigenous and Indigenous worldviews, I'm talking about mine, mine that's from here, that's been passed on for, uh, you know, God, 14,000 years, <laughs> you know, to 20,000 years of uh, history. And that's all been passed along. And that's a very long time um, to teach what, you know, how you can see the world, basically. Children are shaped to understand these things. And that's really hard to translate. It is, but your art gets us and your words get us a little bit closer to, to, mm -hmm. seeing, to, to being able to, to see our differences and love our differences, mm -hmm. embrace our differences mm -hmm. and strengths. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, Cindy Cho, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to share this. And like I said, I love um, talking about these subjects. Um, I'm very passionate about all of these subjects. Uh, so I always encourage people to uh, reach out to me again if they ever want to uh, speak or if anybody's watching this, you know, whoever's watching this, um, if they want to learn more, if they want uh, uh, somebody to listen to them or to help them understand something further. I really enjoy those kind of conversations. So thank you for letting me speak my piece. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Nani chi chi. Bye. Okay, thanks. Bye.